0: Hey everybody, this is Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. Coming up. The issue of transracial adoption took center stage this week after America got a look at Supreme Court justice nominee Amy Coney Barrett's multiracial family. Why are so many so critical?
2: Is it genocide? Are you
1: damaging the children?
3: What's the reality? And she said, mommy, I'm brown. Said, really, what color am I? And she said, you're peach.
1: We entered into it thinking we are open any race. And there was a lot that we did not know.
0: We hear from adoptive parents. Then our newsmaker is a black son adopted by white parents.
1: You're just not going to
0: know things and you have to accept that. what he believes people get wrong about families like his. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is transracial adoption. In recent days, the issue has become front and center after Seventh Circuit Justice Amy Coney Berry was nominated for the Supreme Court. She and her husband have seven children, two adopted from Haiti, prompting thousands of online discussions about white parents adopting children of other races. Some were downright critical, calling white parents colonizers. So what's the real deal? we dig in. With me to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Joseph Crumley. He's a trainer, consultant, and therapist who's an expert in transracial adoption and kinship care. We also have Stephanie Moon, former Open Arms Adoption Program Manager, and she's a parent by adoption. And finally, we have Julie and Nate Overly. They're adoptive parents of two young people Little Jackson and Dominic, welcome to Flashpoint, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank
0: you. Yes. And so, Dr. Crumley, I want to start with you. What exactly, uh, for folks who don't know, is transracial adoption? And then if you could put some insight, why is it a touchy subject in some cases?
2: Well, I think that the definition that's, I think, most useful is the adoption of a child who is, a, who is of a different race from their adoptive parent. It's been a big issue since the 70s. I would even say go back to the 60s when transracial adoptions began in this country. I think it was very controversial for social workers. African-American social workers were, were bringing up the issue of, is it genocide? Are you damaging the children? Are you hurting the children? It became a real political issue. As well, for a lot of states, for the federal government, there were questions about discrimination against adoptive parents and suits were being filed about parents being discriminated on the basis of their race. I think now it's become more of an issue because of um, the issue of of racism, social injustice, social inequities. And uh, I think the question now for a lot of people is how does racism affect children who are adopted transracially? You know, is there something unique for them? Is there some challenges that the parents need to be aware of? So I think that's why it's become an issue today. And then you have public figures who are also being seen now with transracial adoptions. Uh, The nominee for the Supreme Court has adopted transracially. You have movie stars that have adopted transracially. I think that's it as, as well.
0: Yeah, and I want to bring you in, Stephanie. Um, It's more likely to happen now than it has in the past. And can you kind of give us an overview? What are the stats that make this something that uh, a lot of parents are choosing to make this an option for them when they're talking about adoption?
3: A lot of it has to do with um, who's available for adoption and the pool of people who are looking to adopt. And those... Things are sort of uh, unbalanced, right? Um, when, when I was working with Open Arms for, for 10 years, we were seeing uh, primarily Caucasian or white adoptive parents or pre-adoptive parents, and yet 60 to 75% of our uh, babies that were available for adoption were children of color. So there often was a, an imbalance in the homes available for children who needed them.
0: And do you know why this imbalance exists?
3: Anecdotally, I think several reasons. I think one is, you know, something we were discussing earlier, which is kinship care and that many other races and cultures have for years, for generations, had sort of informal ways of taking care of children and not necessarily always um, looking to adopt formally. I think also the, the cost factor, um, you know, adopting, whether domestically or internationally, can be prohibitively expensive for a lot of families. And so oftentimes people think, well, maybe this isn't for me. And um, that may exclude some families from even looking into adoption.
0: Julie and Nate, um, first of all, how do you identify racially? And then what made you say, you know what? We can adopt kids that are not our same race.
1: We are white and our boys are black. And to be honest, I think like a lot of adoptive parents, pre-adoptive parents, you've been through quite a journey to get to this point and you are just ready for a child to love and give the world to. And for us, leading into this process, we didn't think about race. We entered into it thinking we are open to any race because we just wanna build our family. And let me say that we are still in the learning process and there was a lot that we did not know before the adoption process. Here we are now kind of living in the complexities of being a transracially adoptive family and really realizing the complexity of what it means to really take care of our babies and help them build a strong self-identity. There's a lot to that. But we, we like many other adoptive families, were so focused on becoming parents. I mean, we had a fertility journey we went through, like many. And we had struggles, like many. So when you're in that mental space, you're just ready to build and love. But there's a lot of information that you might not have. Yeah, Steph-
0: give you an example. Like one of the things you... You did not know. You said, you know what, I, I just want a baby yes. to love. We want some kids. Listen. To love.
1: And listening to, to Steph, love. like just knowing that there are agencies out there that sounds like they're really preparing pre-adoptive parents, having them take courses, um, really listen to the people that are involved in these special families. We didn't have that. That just wasn't a part of our journey. We did do a private adoption through an agency that just didn't have that service. And so honestly, after I became an adoptive mom, I felt in my gut that there were things I needed to learn. And we just decided to educate ourselves. I dove deep into Facebook groups and support groups. I read blogs. I listened to the voices of transracial adoptees um, because I think that's the voice I need to hear. And we have learned a ton about that. But going in, we had no idea the responsibility that we would have, but we've chosen to embrace it. And I don't know that every adoptive parent gets that training and then knows to take that path on their own.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. And we'll come back to you and dig deeper into that. Dr. Crumley, I mean, uh, Julie just, you know, opened up a a whole (laughs) web here. Not everybody makes this choice, but if you do, there are things you probably need to know that maybe you don't even know that you don't know.
2: I I, I think the way Julie described herself and her husband's situation is very typical of families, um, It was typical of families in the 70s, and it's typical of families today. The, the, the whole idea of, I just want a child. I want a child that's going to bring my family together. It's based on love. Initially, there's even a color blindness to, to the child, and, and it has to do with love is enough. Coming in with that attitude kind of makes you not ready for looking at race and difference. So it's a plus in one sense, because it means that you're going to be able to attach and love that child no matter what. It's that unconditional attachment that that attitude brings, that love is enough. But at the same time, it also can block you from looking at, well, what is different and what do I have to do differently? So things like hair care, mm. skin care, some basic things like that, uh, even down to um, understanding how you as a family have changed because now you're going to be exposed to the discrimination and prejudice, you know, from both sides, uh, African-American family that's, the, as, as well as your own family as well as your internal family so it's it's knowing that understanding prejudice and discrimination how do I talk about race to my children you know how does race impact my children expanding your network of friends and becoming part of the community because you can't do it all by yourself so oh Julie God. and her husband are kind of like letting me know I'm I, obviously I'm You've been through all this, you know, but it's a beautiful process though, you know. The most beautiful.
0: Uh, Stephanie, yeah, chime in here because you work for agency. How did you prepare parents? And what are there instances where you said, you know what,
3: this may not be for you? I wanted to piggyback off of what Dr. Kremly said in terms of the colorblind approach, right? When I am doing um, transracial adoption trainings for for pre-adoptive families, one of the things that I say is, you know, you may say, oh, I'm colorblind. Love is enough. I just want a baby. And I'll say, that's lovely for you inside your home. But unfortunately, the rest of the world doesn't work that way. Um, and we have really got to move people away from this colorblind approach to a color conscious approach because we live in a racist society, in a, in a racist world. And as the mother of, as the white mother of black children, I need to be prepared to advocate for them. And as Dr. Crumley said, to have a network of people around them that they can identify with and who can help them become the grownups and the individuals that they're meant to be. I can't do it myself. And so, yes, there were oftentimes in my work where I would complete a home study with a family. And in fact, I can think of one in particular where the family really wanted to be open. They said, love is enough, color doesn't matter, we're open to any child. And after doing the home study with them, I said, you know, I think right now we're gonna approve you for just Caucasian only. And, and we'll keep doing some reading and some training. And the mom burst into tears and the dad said, oh, thank God. And I thought that day I did my job because they weren't ready. They weren't ready.
0: Was it clear or was there just a feeling there? being that you're an adoptive mom as well.
3: I mean, I think it's both, right? I think as we advocate and learn to advocate for our children um, in society, we start to have a feeling when someone is a good fit and someone isn't, but it's also the way people are approaching questions and answering questions. And when families would say to me, well, yeah, 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 culture and race, but they're gonna be part of my family. Or yeah, I know it's important to live in a diverse area, but we bought this house in a good school district and we want to raise our children here, right? This sort of unwillingness to even consider the issues or to dig deeper is definitely a sign that maybe there's more work to be done.
0: So now I'm back over here to Julie and Nate over here, because finally you got the call and it said, we're going to have, you know, our little boys, it's going to work out. But then what have been the challenges for you, especially since you, you mentioned you didn't know, but what was the first big clue once they came home or he, they came home and you were like, okay, I need some help here.
1: You know, we are actually blessed with an open transracial adoption. So we are connected to our older son, Jack He's three and a half. We are connected to both his birth mother and his birth father's family. So we have learned a lot through them and we've developed quite an awareness through them that we have work to do. And as an open adoptive family, we are all invested in it. So they have really been our support system. And we've just learned that when you are raising a child that is a race that you are not, um, you have to make sure they're staying connected to their community. And so thankfully, as an open adoption, we have that direct connection and they can help us work to make sure Jax and Dom, they've they've essentially adopted our little guy into their open adoption family because we don't have the same arrangement with Dominic, but we are all kind of working together to make sure that these boys grow up connected in the ways they need to be and supported in the ways they need to be. And Nate and I are well aware that we're gonna need to lean on them, especially in these moments of racial injustice. And as these boys grow up and they come to us and they say, I'm having this experience. We haven't had that experience because of our white privilege. So we need to make sure that we are listening to them and then finding the resources to help take care of them when they're dealing with these situations out in the world.
0: Yeah. As a, do you kind of try to open, have open conversation? Do, do they even know that there is difference there? And then how do you kind of broach that conversation?
1: Right. Well, I mean, um, I've I've done a lot of research about like when bias kind of comes into play for little ones and it's a lot earlier than we think. Um, it's as early as three. And I'm sure Dr. Crumley can talk about this a little bit, but, and as an educator as well, I've been doing a lot of research in what um, educators and parents can do to start conversations early to make sure you've got diverse and inclusive resources, toys, you're building connections. There's a lot of work to be done. And granted, we have so much learning to do, not even close to where we need to be. But I'm just so thankful that it clicked with us that there is work to be done. I know there are probably a lot of white adoptive parents out there that don't know this or just aren't in a, in a situation that will trigger this knowledge. I need, I need to
3: make sure I'm doing everything for my babies. To your point, Julie, right? When my oldest daughter came home from preschool and she pulled up her sleeve and she said, mommy, I'm Brown. Mm -hmm. And I pulled up my sleeve and I said, really, what color am I? And she said, you're peach. And we were brown and peach for many, many years until of course society taught her that it was black and white, right? And so it was that willingness and openness to talk about it and acknowledge what your children are bringing to you in terms of their experience. When people say to them, how can that be your mommy? You don't look alike, right? That you're willing to discuss those things openly with your child and and hear what they have to say.
2: Your your research is is accurate. I mean, as early as three years old, children are aware of race. And by the age of five years old, they're beginning to understand stigma and privileges associated with their race. So they're becoming aware of race even before they even talk about it. So that's why I think in a lot of adoptive families that are trained with transracial adoptions, you have to start early. And it starts with as early as two, three years old, recognizing that our skins look different, that our color looks different. Because as soon as shortly after that, they're going to start associating, well, is this a good color or a bad color? And they're going to start listening and hearing what people are saying in society and in schools and what they see on TV. So uh, so there has to be a conversation as early as three, four, five years old about race, what race is and, and what's associated with race, you know, and, and what, what people are saying about race. Developing positive racial identities. I love what Julie said. You've got to start with the toys. You've got to start with pictures. You've got to start with movies. Um, and that be, starts before they can even talk. <laughs> so the images that you provide them around them as they're growing up at one, two, three years old become crucial in terms of looking at people who look like them and feeling good about people who look like them and that, and knowing that it's okay. Because society is already saying that there's something wrong with how you look. And as soon as they become aware of, of what's being said about, about them from society, you've got to start counteracting as soon as you can.
1: And
0: I, and I got to ask you, Stephanie, over here, because... People of color, I mean, you feel it. You, you grow up and you kind of feel this thing. Do you remember the moment you kind of understood and felt the way in which society treated your child was different than the way you were treated? Do you remember that moment?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think we knew going in, um, definitely, we had done a lot of research and taken a lot of classes. But um, it was when my daughter was in kindergarten, my oldest daughter was in kindergarten, and we choose to send her to a primarily black school. Um, that was important to us for their curriculum and the teaching of, of world history and American history and social justice. But it meant in kindergarten, they watched the Ruby Bridges movie. And my daughter came home and five years old. And she said to me, Mommy, white people spit on her. And I said, yes, they did. And how did that make you feel? Mostly because I'm a therapist as well. And I ask my kids all the time, how does that make you feel? <laughs> but uh, she said that that made me really sad. And I said, you know, that makes me sad, too. And it makes me angry. And I'm glad that in our family, we don't treat people differently because of the color of their skin or who they worship or who they love. And she said, yeah, me too. Can I go play? because she's five, right? And so, of course, go play. But it sat with me because I realized that we made this choice to send her to this great school where she was going to see herself reflected everywhere, and yet 98% of that student body population went home to process what they saw in the Ruby mm-hmm. Bridges movie with parents who looked like them. And my daughter had to come home and process that with a parent who looked like the person who spit. And that has never left me. And, and that I think has underscored my commitment to making sure she has a village around her because she's not gonna always feel comfortable coming to process that with the person who looked like the person who spit. And she needs to be able to have spheres where she can process that without me.
0: Thank you for, for sharing um, that moment. I wanna go back to you, uh, Julie and Nate, when the Justice Barrett was announced, I mean, Twitter went crazy. They said all, all sorts of negative things were said about her some positive things as well, but other people react to your family, just your reaction to that. And how do you try to insulate yourself from that?
4: I think it's just going to be an ongoing lifelong process that we're going to have to go through. There already have been moments when we've been out in public and we've been with Jax's birth family and having to field questions and explain. And it's part of a process of us learning and growing uh, as a couple learning and growing with our now extended family and using that to help educate um, our two young ones yeah it's certainly there have been times where we just realized that uh, there's a lot we don't know and we're really we're just looking to improve every step of the way
0: how does it make you feel though nate and how do you getting those kind of
4: range and gamut of emotions but it can be uncomfortable it can be scary um frightening for you as a parent Frightening thinking about your child and what they will have to go through uh, the real comfort that we have, I think, is knowing that we are as a couple kind of in lockstep with each other and how we we view this together and that support we have with the extended birth family. Now, who's really an extension of our family. is just a huge blessing. And so um, that gives us hope.
0: We're going to wrap up in just a couple minutes, but Dr. Kremlin, I want to start with you. And this is a question to the entire panel. Do you think this helps us move us forward when we talk about race relations in this country? Because people are marrying interracially now. You got that, that is very popular and it's becoming more popular and easier for folks, less stigma, so to speak. You see um, the number of transracial adoptions going up will it help us because it it bridges understanding do you think that dr crumlin
2: it's funny but when i talk with parents who have adopted transracially and when i talk to the children who are now adults we've got two generations of children now that were raised transracially they're now in their 40s and they're now raising their own children and it's it's interesting when I've watched over the years, um, transracial families, transracial adoptive families, and children from transracial adoptive families, they, they, they've become a new movement. And they didn't even know they were gonna become part of a movement, okay? Where they're kind of like the gap. They're kind of like the bridge that's happening racially now. And they're going to become the bridge between the two extremes for, 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 for families who maybe have not had an appreciation for racism and how it's affected them. So I look at the transracial adoption as a positive thing. Well, let's just let's, let's be real practical. Research is showing that children that have adopted transracially are growing up to be well-adjusted individuals without any emotional problems. Not without any, but they're stable. The only problem that they have is one of feeling alienated from their community because they didn't grow up in their community. And my compliments to Julie and and Nate for making that connection. And the second thing is they're feeling as though they have not been prepared adequately to deal with prejudice and discrimination. When I look at the transracial adoptive families, the, the parents themselves are going to experiencing prejudice and discrimination that they've never experienced before. And again, that's a bridge. The children are going to be able to to talk about being raised in a white family by white parents and be made to feel as if they're good human beings. That's another bridge. We also have the children who are adopted transracially also being open to other interracial relationships as well. That's another bridge. So we've got a bridge by marriage. We've got a bridge by education. We've got a bridge by parents who were white, who are now a minority group themselves. I see it more of a positive than negative. Plus, it's better for children to have a family than to not have a family at all and to be raised in institutions and to be raised in foster care. You know, so I think that's another reason why transracial adoption is good, provided those children are provided the resources to cope with racism and at the same time are provided the resources to feel connected with their community.
0: Transracial parents, are you the first generation who actually has to be anti-racist? In order to raise a child of of a different race, you have to be active, actively remove racism. You can't just say, oh, I don't see color. You have to literally
3: do stuff. I always say to families, it's not enough to be an ally. You have to be an interrupter, right? Because this is not about other people. This is about your family. And it's, it's personal.
1: That's right. We don't ever want our boys to doubt every move we've made raising them. And we want them to be proud of the actions we've taken as a family to um, you know, push through these prejudices, to handle these moments that are going to continue to come up. And at the end of the day, it is such a gift to be representing this type of family, to share our story. When you were asking earlier about how we feel when we are out in the world dealing with these things. Yes, it can be scary, like Nate said, but also There is just a flow of love. People are looking at us and listening and changing their minds about things. They're more open to engage with us in conversations about things they weren't comfortable with before. They love our children because they're our children, but now we're asking them to see our children for the beautiful black boys that they are. And that is just opening up this amazing dialogue. And it's just been a true joy, a struggle at times, very complex, but what a gift really. You can hear the
2: movement. Now you can see where you hear the movement. That's the movement. <laughs> That's the movement, and it just happens so naturally, you know. You go to the t- you know, that like these are parents now who see color, you know. They'll walk into a school and they'll say, Where are the murals? Where are the pictures? Where's the music? You know, um, they're, they're going to advocate on behalf of their children. You, as, as you said, you can't just sit by, you know. Um, if something happens inappropriately to your child, you become their advocate and you model for your children how to become their own advocates. Um, so we have. You have so 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 that's what I mean by becoming advocates because they by becoming advocates, they become the movement and they do it as parents. Um, you know, it, it's not Black Lives Matter, it's like my child matters. And when you go in there for your child, you are just as intense as anyone else, and you're gonna stand up, and that's again, and then also to see the parents who have adopted transracially being advocates and re-educating their own people of their own race. They can talk to people of their own race about things that the other that 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 folks from the minority community can't talk about. They know about white privilege. They know about the prejudice and discrimination. They know about the biases. They can read people's faces and they can confront. They've got avenues that we don't have as a minority community. Yeah. So again, that's a movement, you know, in and of itself that just happens, you know, quite naturally because of just being parents.
0: We're going to leave it right there on a positive note. And I want to say thank you so much to you, Dr. Joseph Crumley, to Stephanie Moon, and to Julie and Nate Overly for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this very important issue in the news. Thank you so and much. Thank
2: you, Sherry, for bringing this up. This is excellent.
0: Thank so yes. important. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank so
0: Next up, we hear from a transracial adoptee.
5: Nobody's parents can prepare them for everything in life.
0: What he says, people get wrong about multiracial adoptive families. But first, traffic and weather in a couple minutes. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our past newsmaker of the week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early all of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. Welcome to part two of our discussion on transracial adoption for this segment. Our guest is Dan Pearson, author of a recent op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer titled As a Black Son Adopted by White Parents, I Relate to Amy Coney Barrett's Mixed Family. Dan, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So first of all, a uh, great article, very
5: personal. It was a little tough to write, but you know, I, I felt compelled to talk about it because uh, there aren't that many uh, transracial adoptees in the conversation. Uh, you know, you have a lot of people who are critics who, you know, they, they usually aren't transracial adoptees themselves. And then a lot of the time people defending our parents, I felt like our perspective was needed in the conversation.
0: When Amy Coney Barrett was announced and they saw that she had two children from Haiti among her (laughs) seven children, they they immediately attacked her. How
5: did that make you feel? I mean, honestly, it made me upset because a lot of the people who are critical of transracial adoption, they aren't necessarily thinking about the children themselves and how they're going to perceive you know, their criticism. You know, I love my parents, they love me, and I love my older siblings, and we had a really great experience. And I want people to know that most of the time, you know, transracial adoption, in the vast majority of cases, it's a positive experience for the whole family and it's something that should be you know, celebrated and just like any other type of family.
0: Yeah. And so let's dig in uh, to this, because you are, you identify as Black, mm-hmm. African-American. Yeah. And your parents are white. hmm And how did you come to be adopted? Because you were, you were all the way across the state. Yeah.
5: yeah, I was in Pittsburgh. And so my parents in the 80s, they got involved with the pro-life movement. Uh, Bethany Christian Services, which is a big, you know, foster and adoptive agency in Pennsylvania. You know, they came to their church at the time. And they said, you know, this is a pro-life church, but what are you doing about it? Are you just protesting or, you know, we have a need? And so my parents, you know, initially they started as foster parents. And basically throughout the entire 1980s, I mean, my older sister was born in 81 and they started doing that shortly afterwards. So they basically had a newborn in their house from when my sister was born to, uh, you know, (laughs) the 90s. So they had a series of foster children. And it just became too hard for them to continue giving away these children emotionally because they formed such strong bonds. And another thing they had found out is that, you know, there, there are a lot of black children and mixed children who need homes compared to white children. Uh, it's actually crazy. The adoption agencies will charge you more for adopting a white child because there's so much demand for white children from families who can't have their own. When they found that out, they said, you know, we had been looking at adopting a child. Maybe we should look into adopting a black or biracial child because it seems like that's where the greatest need is for parents. And they had had experience with black and biracial children as foster parents. So they, it came easy to them to love the children just like all the other children. So based on their experience, they felt that they were good candidates for it. And it turned out, you know, really, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that happened for me and my brother because there weren't any parents in Pittsburgh looking for a biracial baby in the 1980s. And so they, had, they actually took me all the way across the state to Philadelphia because Philadelphia is where they could find somebody who was willing to raise a biracial child. And when did you learn
0: you were adopted, or was yeah. that
5: always part of the story for you? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I do remember my parents talking to me about it, um, but it's tough with little kids because they forget and they don't necessarily realize the uh, you know the gravity of what you're explaining to them, um, but it's something that I kind of came to realize as as I got older. Um, in my family, actually, uh, it was a lot easier to kind of not realize that you were different because my aunt is actually married to a Japanese man, so my cousins are also mixed. And so for me, I grew up with this mixed family with. People from different backgrounds, and that was normal to me as a child. As I got older, I started to notice, oh wait, most people's families aren't like this. Most people don't have, you know, a Japanese uncle and a black brother, and uh, you know, and my, my other my other aunt and uncle ended up adopting a child from China, you know, about ten years after us. So for me, it was you know kind of like we had this really great diverse family. It was very normal until I got older. And then that's when things, you know, you start to learn that it is different and people do perceive you differently than other people, you know, in your family. Inside the family, yeah. there were no issues. Yeah, there was, yeah, inside the family it wasn't. I have a, a black mother and a white father. He has two black parents, but people still thought that we were brothers. He's a little bit darker than me, but not that much. And so people would just think that we were brothers growing up a lot of the time until they met our parents and sometimes until they met both of our parents. A lot of the time, because I am biracial, you know, if I only had one parent with me, people might not realize I was adopted. They would just think, oh, that's his mom, and you know, his dad's somewhere else, and he's black, or that's his dad and his mom. And, but my parents were always like really good about it. They really didn't, they didn't get sensitive. You know, my, my mom, even though she is white, she grew up in um, North Philly around like 4th and Spring Garden because her father was the superintendent of the Helping Hands mission there. So she went to school with, you know, black kids. She and her siblings were the only white kids at the school, you know, and this was the 50s and 60s. So it was a very segregated time. So she was much more, um, you know, used to black culture and black people than a lot of other potential moms, I think.
0: It seemed like your issues were with other people.
5: Yeah, because there are other kids who just, you know, they just don't understand. And there's adults who just don't understand. Most of my parents' friends and all of their family were very supportive of their decision. But there is definitely people in our neighborhoods who thought it was really weird that my parents had two non white kids. And, you know, and growing up too, there's definitely been people who have either, from one perspective, been a more racist perspective saying that it's wrong because you shouldn't be taking in kids who are different. And from another perspective, which I found at older, is people who are saying that it's not good for Black children to be raised outside of the Black community, which I understand that criticism, but nobody's parents can prepare them for everything in life. And you learn anyway. You know, one thing I have to say for me and my brother is people growing up would recognize that. There were things that we needed to learn, and they would tell us. A lot of people that we knew in our community or at church, who were black, would tell us things and tell, and point us in directions of you know literature and other things. And my parents as well. When you when you adopt uh, you know a child child of a different race, it's not like they just tell you, oh, here's the baby. You know, they tell you to go and do your research. And my parents did a lot of research. So within the family, you know, we were treated every. All of us were treated the exact same by my parents and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and everybody else in the family.
0: Yeah. So were you glad you had your brother though?
5: Yes. Not when I was little, because he was a pain, but. <laughs> <laughs> like most brothers can be. Yeah. yeah. Little brothers can I, be. I wanted a sister and that was my parents' original plan was but they found that actually, even worse, black boys is harder to place than black girls. My parents, they actually, one of the reasons they adopted my brother was because they felt like it wouldn't be good for me to be the only one. And that I would feel kind of, you know, alone and more awkward about it if if it was just me. And, you know, of course you find your sibling annoying when you're little, but growing up, I was really glad that the two of us could share this kind of experience because if we had any questions or we had each other to talk to about it. And I definitely, you know, if there are families out there that are looking at transracial adoption, if you can, you know, you know, have it in your heart to adopt two children, that can be very helpful for them because that way they don't feel alone or singled out in the family. You know, you stick out less if, they're, if you're not alone. And that's the case for Amy Coney Barrett's family too. Is she, has, she has two children who are both from Haiti. And I think the two of them will be, you know, really comforting to each other growing up because there's a lot of things that they can talk about, you know, that their other siblings won't understand at first or as quick. Do
0: you feel like something was left out? Did you ever feel like something was missing?
5: It's strange. And this is something that all adoptees deal with is it's strange to uh, grow up without this, you know, knowing who your biological relatives are. I mean, most people, you know, they they can see a picture of who their grandparents are and for me, I, I don't know what my, you know, I can't say that I have my grandpa's nose or, you know, I have my own daughter now and I can see her hair is like my hair. And she, you know, she's got, she I can see what features she has for me and my wife. And that's it's adorable, really nice. by the way. She's oh, so it's a nice thing, but you don't have that with your parents when you're adopted. So it is, you do feel a little bit like you're missing something when you're adopted, but it's not something that I mean, and people have different reactions. It's harder for some people.
0: Do you think it was something missing because you two were Black boys?
5: Yeah, I mean, they, they, there's just things that they didn't know. Even though my mom grew up in a Black neighborhood, she herself wasn't Black, you know? She, she doesn't understand what it's like to be a Black woman the way that my mother did and my birth mother did and my brother's uh, birth mother did. So, you know, she tried and my my father tried. You know, and and I'm not saying that you know you have to put kente cloth all over your house if you adopt a black child, but it's it's not you know it's just you're just not going to know things, and you have to accept that. You know, people it's it's hard to accept that you have limitations, but people you know people need to accept that, and and I I I think that if I was going to give advice to transracial adoptive parents, I would tell them to you know, let their children decide the pace and everything, but be a little bit more purposeful. um, You know, it's making sure that they have, whether it's at school or church or in their neighborhood, that they have, you know, lots of Black friends, and that they go to school with Black children, and that they, you know, they're not in an overwhelmingly white environment. And to also realize that Overwhelmingly white environment might mean one thing to a black person, another thing to a white person. A lot of the time, people will say, "Oh, it was so diverse there," and I'll look like that wasn't, that, you know, it's not something that they can help. It doesn't mean anything bad. It's just, it's just a perception thing. So, for white parents, it can be, it can be tough, to kind of overcome that thing. And but in the end, it's not something that's insurmountable. It's-
0: story. Tell me a story where you know it was the. There It was two different perceptions, but you guys were able to reconcile that.
5: I mean, I, I grew up in uh, Frankfurt, which when I was little was overwhelmingly Irish. And when I got older was not. <laughs> My parents, they did not leave because they wanted us to to live in a more diverse neighborhood. You know, they didn't want us to feel like, you know, we were not, you know, we were leaving a neighborhood as it got more diverse. You know, other people in our family, they really just didn't understand why anybody would want to live in Frankfurt, you know, at the point that we were living there. Um, And it's it's something that, you know, they didn't say anything. It's not like they said anything offensive or anything like that about it, but it's something where even the sentiment to me was, I, I didn't like to hear that, you know, because from my point of view, if there was any problems in the neighborhood, it was a result of the city not doing its job in terms of cleaning our streets, in terms of making sure landlords follow the rules and regulations. You know, that's not the p- fault of people who are just trying to make a nice home for their family in a in a neighborhood that they perceive as better as where they grew up. You know, that's something that my brother and I, the Northeast is a place where there is a lot of, unfortunately, especially back then, there's a lot of you know different forms of intolerance that existed. And Some people are more polite about it than others, but no matter how polite people are about it, it comes across the same way uh, to me. You know, I I hear something else, even if it's unsaid sometimes. Although my parents didn't play into that, you know, I don't think it took them longer to understand that than it took me and my brother.
0: You and your brother would hear little things like, oh, that neighborhood is going to crap. Why why would you stay there? To you, it could feel more like something like a microaggression that, It's race-based.
5: It's a a dog whistle that I heard and my brother would hear that they, sometimes they would hear it depending on who was saying it and how they were saying it, but they didn't necessarily perceive it the same way.
0: Do you think transracial adoption could, it kind of forces parents to become anti-racist in a
5: way? Yeah. And I actually, in my article, I linked to a study that's been done. And it's found that when you look at, um, you know, conservative white people who adopt and support transracial adoption, their views on race are markedly different than other people in their peer group, you know, who go to similar churches and, you know, live in similar neighborhoods. It's something that has a strong effect in these communities because uh, there's definitely many times growing up where I would meet some evangelical kids from the distant suburbs and I was definitely the first you know non white person that they had met and for them it was very you know it was very uh surprising sometimes and they would and they would learn more you know and they would sometimes unlearn things that they had been taught or you know implied to them before by coming in contact with me and my brother and for my parents they learned about things you know when my brother got taken in and they didn't know where he was for hours You know, that didn't happen to my older brother and my older sister. I don't think either of them has ever talked to a police officer in their life. So for my parents, that was kind of like a shock that this still happens to people in Philadelphia, you know, in the 2000s, you know, you have a kid taken, nobody calls his parents, you know, he's not 18 years old, they didn't call my mom and tell her, oh, yeah, we took in your son, who's, you know, 16, we're asking him questions. They didn't formally arrest him, so they didn't have to Mirandize him. Um, So he was not informed of any of his rights or anything like that. And he was basically at their mercy until they decided it was time for him to go. That's not something my parents really realized that the police do to people who aren't, you know, hardened criminals. You know, my parents are conservative. You know, they, they, you know, they support law and order and everything. So for them, that was really surprising that that would happen. And it kind of, it was definitely a jolt to their, to their worldview.
0: So for them, seeing their black son, um, mm-hmm. who they love, be basically taken in by police, it opened their eyes. That you think they really kind of said, "Wow, this—why would they do this?" Because they know their kid. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The and, only difference is he's a black kid. Why? Why would you do this? Yeah,
5: exactly. And and they know that nobody would ever do that to my older brother, who's white. I mean, that nobody would ever. It's, there's a range of factors, but I just can't imagine any situation where the police officers would say, oh, we got to take him to the station and ask him some questions without telling him he has access to a lawyer, letting him call people, things like that. That just wouldn't have happened to him. And and for my parents, it was, yeah, it definitely changed their perspective on the type of things that can happen and the type of challenges that Black Americans face.
0: So do you think this, this whole idea of transracial adoption could lead to, I mean, because a lot of people who are, in this space are conservative christians Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it could lead to better informed white people
5: i i do think that it can because i look at something like in in the 1990s you know our our you know gay uh you know americans were very mistreated in many states it was illegal um and and it was only in the last 20 years that people have realized how intolerant they they have been and a lot of it's because, been because of their family members, because family members have come out to them and they have realized that whatever perception or boogeyman they've created of gay people in their minds, that's not true. But when you can look at somebody who's a member of your family, somebody who's even close, close, you know, member of a close family friend or a cousin who is gay, and you can say, I don't want them being mistreated because of that part of their identity. And I don't want people to be gay bashing them and telling them that they can't adopt children because of who they are. And that same effect, you know, that, that works with, with transracial families as well. Because when somebody is your family member and you love them as a family member, you can't, you can't abide them being mistreated and you can't abide them, you know, having their rights trampled on. So I definitely think that, you know, as transracial adoption grows, uh, and there's definitely growing pains. There's definitely some families that, you know, are a little bit, uh, you know, I I might not place children with them, you know, until they can show that they have made some strides. But I think that a lot of the time you have, you know, good hearted, kind hearted people who want to bring more children to their families, and it'll be kind of a wake up call for them. And they will, they will learn a lot because it's, there's a lot to learn. And they might never have you know gone into that you know you know really waded into that topic as deeply as they're going to have to now but wading into it will be good for them i firmly believe that it will be good for them they will learn a lot you know and they it, it's it's nice to have surprising allies you know it's you, you go in the workplace and the conservative christian you know woman uh who you might disagree with on a whole bunch of issues is the one who is supporting you on Black Lives Matter or something else? That that's the real game changer because the kind of those kind of arguments that happen, it's it's sometimes rare to see people on opposing side. You know, agree who are opposing sides on most things disagree with each other. But um, I think that definitely it can have a really strong effect for those yeah. who it touches.
0: Yeah, because I tell you, they're in a position. Right? Your parents are in a position well, to educate people who you or I would never be able to touch.
5: Yeah, absolutely. You
0: know? um, and, and you know, we can hopefully make some incremental changes. Is there anything else you want to just say what people get wrong about trans racial adoption yeah. or what you want people to take from this interview or from your article?
5: I want people to know that it's not traumatic for, 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 for us. I mean, a lot of the people who are speaking on behalf of you know, trans racially adopted children and haven't really experienced it themselves they've they've created this narrative where it's somehow you know colonialist and and chauvinist and you know there's some horrible thing going on and it's not the case it's it's something that is good it's something that's about love and family and that's ultimately the things that are most important to most people in in this world there's really no reason for them to be fighting about it there's a lot better ways for them to uh, try to fix this, you know, things that are broken in this country. I want people to feel comfortable enough that they let their black child go and play over at their white neighbor's house with their kids and, you know, and they're treated the same way as everybody else. That's what I want for this country. So for them to be opposing that is really sad.
0: And we'll leave it right there. Dan Pearson, thank you so much for being here. Next up, these fraternity brothers are hitting the streets to get voters fired up. You
6: basically engage the, the neighbors, walk in the communities.
0: Their old school meets social distance strategy. More coming up. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now we here at KYW, we are all about community and with elections a month away, some local fraternity brothers are working to impact voter participation in a good way. Here to talk about their initiative are our Patriot Home Care Changemakers, Kenneth Bennell and Elijah Golden of the Abington Ambler Alumni Chapter. The Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. So you guys have been busy. You have some things going on. Your vote is your voice. Tell me what problem, can you all are seeking to solve.
7: We want to raise the voter registration and voter turnout specifically in the state of Pennsylvania and, and more specifically Montgomery County. Uh, we're targeting anyone who needs to be registered. We're not biased towards one person, one color, one creed. Uh, We want to register everyone. We're going out to uh, the communities in Montgomery County to make sure that we are as effective as possible in terms of going door-to-door to to register people uh, on the spot. Is door-to-door your approach?
6: Absolutely. And that door-to-door approach is definitely helped being spearheaded by the brothers of New Jersey and across the the entire tri-state area. And we're brothers like Maury Winkler, brothers, Vernon Marrow, they're bringing the foot soldiers, the, the the actual feats to the streets, per se, to make sure that we canvass and hit every door possible in our service area, which is eastern Montgomery County and also the entire Montgomery County of Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, and so tell me a little bit about Montgomery County. What's the turnout like? Are there groups that uh, traditionally do not participate and are you
7: targeting those groups? Yeah, we definitely want to target the low percentages in Montgomery County where some communities and townships are as low as 25% and some are as high as 80 or 90%. We certainly want to elevate that low 25% to a much higher turnout and participation.
0: Yeah. And I got to ask, I mean, the pandemic is here. So what accommodations have you made to deal with that? And how do you think it's been impacting voter registrations across Montgomery County?
6: That's a good question. So you know, basically, we've been like hitting the streets and really going to them per se, but within their spaces. Like in Springfield Township, we did this particular um, endeavor where we basically engaged the the neighbors, walked in the communities with masks, with the proper social distancing, with the proper PPP, so we can do the necessary job to basically canvass the areas you know essentially you know some of these areas like even in Montgomery County like the malls and the little strip malls they may be a challenge so we think the best way to go about it is by coming to them which will have the best effect but also respecting their distances and allowing them to engage us per se. Yeah
0: and so Ken tell me about this event what is it uh and what are y'all gonna be doing?
7: We will be uh, going out door to door in various communities in Montgomery County All of us will be, in terms of participation, requiring each individual to wear a mask. Uh, We will make sure we also have the hand sanitizers available and knocking on each door because that way we can ensure that we have one-on-one contact with each household as we go through the neighborhood.
0: And so when is it, this event, what is it called? What specifically, y'all gonna be doing this? How will people identify y'all?
7: The Abington Ambler Alumni Chapter hosting the Noops Pennsylvania Voter Registration Drive Uh, will be coming out in masses. We will have over 75 participants, at least, participating in various communities. October 17th, the Chester
6: Alumni of Cap-Alpha-Side Incorporated will be doing the exact same thing in the exact same way from 12 to 6. Hidden the streets of Chester, Pennsylvania. Chester, Pennsylvania um, is, a, is an area that's definitely going to be needed to be engaged to make sure that we get voter turnout based off the super vote uh, turnouts from the last elections. And we need to increase those numbers, engage the voters, engage the community to make sure not only do we have them registered, do they understand, are they going to vote, and do whatever we need to do to get the vote out?
0: What would be success for you?
6: Honestly, based off of what I've done, and I've done this so far, engaging our neighbors, engaging our neighbors, having that conversation that we want to make sure that one, if we need to register you to vote, we want to do that. Hey, do you need a mail-in ballot, right, Brother Fennell? We'll do that as well. And three, how do you plan to vote and get out and vote and do so and make sure that we have a positive experience in the community and that we want to make sure everybody's voice is heard?
0: yeah so will you guys be using that contactless uh, method with absolutely people have the QR codes and they can just log in yes. right
7: there and we we'll we'll approach it both ways because you know you have a very diverse age and and understanding of the voter process, so you may have senior citizens who are not up to date on this the bar scanning who may want to register right there on the spot with a paper ballot as well as young people who are more you know, internet connected who will feel more much, much more comfortable with a scan, you know, bar scanning.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so give people the contact information where they can um, either, you know, participate this weekend or on the 17th or find out more about your various
7: initiatives. My name is Kenneth Fennell. My contact number is 610-350-5068.
6: I'm Elijah A. Golden Jr. And my contact information is 267-975-5033. My email address is elijah.golden at comcast.net.
0: Thank you so much, gentlemen. Your vote is your voice. They'll be out on October 3rd um, from 12 to 6 in Montgomery County. They'll also be out in Chester County on October 17th. I want to say thank you, Kenneth Fennell and Elijah Golden, for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news. I appreciate you both.
6: Thank you very much. Guys. Guys.
0: That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames to quote Anonymous, love is not if or because. Love is anyway and even though and in spite of. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.